All right, you need to grab your Bible and open to Genesis chapter 37. And when I say 37, I don't mean 37, I mean 43. And so <laughs> it's just a little, see if I'm awake yet. Genesis chapter 43, uh, you'll notice a couple things. First of all, it is Mother's Day, so I am wearing a tie. It uh, does feel bizarre, and it probably looks bizarre to you as well, but I did this for my mom. Mom, happy Mother's Day. That's my, my tradition. Uh, also, after the service, if you have a kid over in Kids Life, Little Life Nursery, they're going to get a carnation moms uh, to, to bring and give to you. But we recognize that there are some moms here who don't have a kid across the street, uh, across the parking lot in our other building over there. So there's a few carnations in back. If you see a mom and she's not walking out of here with a carnation, you make sure she gets one and, uh, and they're right back there. Uh, also want to just uh, on this Mother's Day, thank God for our mothers and uh, and I also told Holly that I would shout out to her son, Wes, who has a birthday today and has to share it with his mom on Mother's Day. And so, happy birthday, four years old to Wes. All right, Genesis chapter 43. Uh, I read an article this week uh, from the Australian News Network that talked about Gordon Ramsay, the host of Hell's Kitchen. And, uh, and the question that came to mind when I was reading this article is, are your kids worthy of the legacy that you're going to leave them someday? Or as a kid, are you worthy of the legacy that your parents left you? Uh, Gordon Ramsay, who is not necessarily a role model in any way, shape, or form that I want my kids to, but he asked this interesting question. Do I want my, do, will my kids live up to my legacy? You see, as the, as the uh, host of this popular show, he's amassed quite a bit of wealth. And so this article was talking about how uh, when he boards a plane he refuses to let his children sit in first class with him. Uh, now, in this interview, let me just read you this quote, and I had to clean this up to make this appropriate for any ears anywhere. So, uh, but he said this. He says, when I aboard a plane, I turn left with Tana, and then my kids turn right, and I say to the chief stewardess, make sure those cleaned up word for kids don't come anywhere near us. I've worked hard to sit close to the pilot, you appreciate it more when you've worked for it. I, I thought that was kind of interesting. This article said that he should write a book on parenting. And so I don't know about that, but he cares. He cares about this legacy that his kids are going to get. Um, Warren Buffett, who is one of the wealthiest men in America, shared his view on leaving an inheritance to his children. He said this, I want to leave enough money so they would feel they could do anything, but not so much that they could do nothing. I thought that was interesting, thinking about the legacy that he's going to leave his kids. This inheritance that I'm leaving my kids someday probably is not monetary. They're going to split $100 six ways when I die. So, you know, by that time, it'll be worth a meal at McDonald's, right? But rather the joy of giving their lives away. Like, that's what I've found my greatest joy in life is in giving my life away. And so, will I leave that legacy to my kids? Will they pick that up? So how, the question is really, how do I know if my kids are living up to my legacy, to my name? Do they look like me in purpose? And in viewing us in the light of the inheritance that we receive in Christ, God asks that same question of us as his children. He asks, are they worthy? In viewing us, he asks us, are they worthy of the inheritance we're going to receive? Are we? 
you know, really the question is, have we been transformed? Do we look like Jesus? Today, I want you to know, as we look at Genesis chapter 43 and 44 in the life of Joseph, I want you to know today that God puts the extent of our transformation to the test to see if we are worthy of the legacy that he would leave us as his children. God puts our transformation to the test. Now, we're in this series in Joseph, and, we, and I've said this uh, for six messages now, that the whole point of Joseph is that God's sovereign hand is working through our bad decisions and evil choices to work for our good and his glory. That's the whole point of Genesis in this story in Joseph, in the book of Genesis. Every message is about the sovereignty of God in this series and what this looks like. We said I, at the end of the story, the whole point of the story of Joseph comes out. Genesis chapter 50, 20. You should memorize this. I've talked about it every week. If you've been here for six times, you've seen this verse six times. Look at Genesis chapter 50, 20. It says this. As for you, Joseph says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You intended it for evil. God intended it for good. That's what the entire message of Joseph is about. And you remember, if you haven't been here, let me just catch you up to speed on where we are in the life of Joseph. Joseph made some bad decisions. It, got, it ticked off his brothers. They sold him into slavery. He became a slave in Egypt. They assumed he was dead, but Joseph, over a course of 25 years, rose to a position of power in Egypt. And last week we saw that his brothers, after 25 years, come traipsing down to Egypt during a famine to look for food. And lo and behold, they end up in front of this Egyptian ruler who they don't recognize is the very brother that they sold into slavery. And so as it goes, it doesn't go well for those brothers. We saw last week. They stand in front of this ruler, and this ruler basically imprisons one of the brothers, Simeon, and he tells the other brothers, I'm putting you, I, 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 we're going to see whether you are serious and whether what you spoke to me is true. You said you have a brother back home. I'm going to hold Simeon in jail here. You go home and get your youngest brother. And if you bring him back here, I'll know that what you say is true. Otherwise, I'm going to keep him in here as a spy. And so we get these brothers go home to their dad and these nine brothers and tell him what happened. And last week we saw that really God doesn't just want to save you. He wants to change you. God wants to transform you. That was the whole point of the message last week. God wants to transform you. He wants to change you. And Jacob last week we saw wasn't willing to change. Look at, let me remind you where we left off. 42, chapter 42, verse 38. When the brothers told him about their plight and how Simeon was in jail back in Egypt, and that how they needed to get Benjamin to come back with them. Jacob said this, my son Benjamin will not go down there with you. His brother Joseph is dead. He's the only one left. And if harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. And Jacob was unwilling. But the brothers were willing. And as the brothers journey back to Egypt today, we're going to see we're going to learn that that transformation, that change that we talked about last week, today we're going to see that God puts it to the test. God puts our transformation to the test. And that's what today's text is going to show us, that God tests our transformation. And he does this, we're going to learn today, in three ways. 
He, God examines three things about our lives to put our transformation to the test. And the first thing that God does, that the first aspect that he examines of our life, the first thing is love. God examines our, our love. He tests our transformation by examining our love. Look at chapter 43, verse 1. Now, the famine was still severe in the land, so when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah, that's one of his sons, Judah said to him, the man warned us solemnly, you will not see my face again unless your brother Benjamin is with you. God wants, Jacob wants these boys to go back because it's been long enough, probably two years have passed since they went to Egypt in return, which means Simeon has been in jail in Egypt for two years and Jacob has been dragging his feet. Finally, they run out of food and Jacob has no choice but to send his boys back and he intends to send them back for more grain without sending Benjamin. And so Judah now reminds his dad of what that Egyptian said. And basically, as you're reading in the text, here's the conversation. Jacob says, hey, go back to Egypt. Judah says, uh-uh, I am not going without Benjamin. And, it, and his dad says in the swiney voice, why did you have to go and tell him that you had another son at home? And Judah says, hey, don't blame us. The guy asked us questions. We just answered them. Look at what happens in verse eight. So look what Judah says in response to his dad. Then Judah said to Israel, which is also the name for Jacob, his father, Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. Judah says, I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I don't bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we had not delayed we could have gone and returned twice. Judah is the only brother who's given credit for talking here. In the past, we've seen the nine or 10 brothers, depending on what it is, talking to their dad and, and then sort of they're doing group speak. But now Moses points out specifically to us that Judah is talking here. And, and why is Judah given the credit for talking? Well, first of all, Judah is very aware that, first of all, his brother has been in jail for two years, Simeon. And he's also aware of his father's emotional state. And so what we see here is that Judah has been transformed and changed in just his level of care and concern. Because the reality is, is that Judah is the one who spoke when they sold Joseph into slavery. Look at, I'll, let me put this verse on the screen here for you. Uh, Genesis 37, 27. These were the words of, jo of Judah about Joseph back when they sold him into slavery. Judah said, come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. You see, Judah was the one 25 years ago who said, let's sell him. It was his idea. He ran with it. But in Judah already here, we're seeing a very changed man. He exhibits love and concern for his dad's emotional state. He cares about his dad's well-being. He's willing to bear the weight and the responsibility of his youngest brother, Benjamin. This is very, very different. Judah is a very, very different man.
from the man who took no responsibility for the seeming death of Joseph. Remember when he sold Joseph? He went back and told his dad he covered it up for 20, for many, many, many years. He covered it up. He lied about it. He took zero responsibility back in the day. But now we see that Judah has been transformed in love. He loves his brothers. He loves his dad. Friends, living in love is a key trademark or hallmark of living for the kingdom of God. When we live in love, we live like Jesus because Jesus loves. God loves. When we're changed, we love like he does. Love is important. Love is a key characteristic of the kingdom of God. Now, love is a word that is abused and used in so many different ways in the world around us that sometimes it's hard to get a handle on what it means by love. I think in the world we live in, love has come to mean, just let me do what I want. Just leave me alone and let me do as I see fit. It, and, and you see this in, in how parents raise their children. Uh, this definition of love helps us reconcile massive social issues. It affects how we treat our friends and neighbors. If love seems, seems to say, let me do as I see fit. But the Bible has a very different way of thinking about love. The Bible sees it very differently. The Bible says love is not about leaving someone alone, but rather engaging them for their good, for God's glory. There's a word here that's repeated over and over in this passage. And it's really one of two places that this word appears in the entire story of Joseph. And it's repeated over and over here. And that is the word, the Hebrew word shalom. Perhaps you've heard that word before, shalom. Generally speaking, we think the word shalom means peace. And that's how people use it today, shalom. But, more, but in Hebrew, it's more than that. Shalom in Hebrew has this idea of desiring someone's holistic well-being. It means involving this complete well-being, and it involves a restored and right relationship. Shalom is a way of desiring what we would call love. It's desiring someone else's well-being. And in this story, shalom is on display. Love is on display. You see, as the story continues here in, in the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, we see that Jacob loads up his boys with their stuff. He agrees to send Benjamin with him and he puts up a caravan and he sends them all down to Egypt. And, and Jacob, before they go, he says this prayer and it's basically, God, would you give them shalom on their journey? Because I'm host. Like, I, I'm just gonna resign myself that my life's gonna be miserable for the rest of my days. Um, when the boys show up in Egypt, they're shocked by what happens. This is not what they expected. Their dad sends them off with the worst possible insight into what their future will look like. They're imagining the worst possible outcome. And they show up and they go into Joseph, this Egyptian ruler. They don't know he's their brother. They walk into his courtyard expecting to beg for more grain and rather, they're escorted to Joseph's private residence where they're going to have a private dinner with this ruler of Egypt. 
And then they're surprised because they have these words shalom spoken to them out of Egypt. Look at chapter 43, verse, verse 19. So they went up to Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house. They don't know if they're in trouble or if they're blessed. Remember, uh, we looked last week, the silver that they had, had spent on the grain last trip to Egypt had been tucked back in their backpacks. They didn't know whether Joseph thought that they had stolen the silver or what had happened. So he says, please, sir, they say to the steward, we came down here the first time to buy food, but at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks and each of us found his silver, the exact weight in the mouth of his sack. So we have brought it back with us. We've also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put the silver in our sacks. Watch what the servant says. Verse 23, he says, it's all right. Shalom, that's the word. He says, shalom, don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. And then he brought Simeon out to them. Friends, this is so incredibly shocking because an Egyptian servant who is not Hebrew in the slightest, who doesn't know the Hebrew God, the one true God, is speaking shalom to them, is reminding them. It gets better when Joseph shows up. It gets more shocking. Look at verse 26 of chapter 43. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house and they bowed down before him to the ground. He asked them, how are you? Shalom. And they said, and then he said, how is your father? Shalom. Is he still living? Is he still living? And they replied, your servant, our father is still alive and shalom. And they bowed low to pay him honor. An Egyptian servant reminded them of God's shalom. An Egyptian ruler reminds them of the shalom. And then they get to this great feast as the story continues. And all of a sudden they see that when they're seated at the table, they're seated in birth order. And they're scratching their heads and going, how would this guy know what our birth order is? And they're seated there and they're saying, what's going on? And the reality is, is that God is putting the extent of their transformation to the test. He wants to know if, as God's people, they will love the way God loves. He wants them to know that they have what it takes to be the people of God. And God wants his people to reflect his love. Judah, by this point, we're going to see, has given up his desire to get even and now he pursues this love, this shalom, this well-being of others. Friends, there are those of us in this room who get what it means to be hurt. You could step into Judah's shoes and go, this guy, yeah, he hurt people, but he's been really hurt. You get it. You could step into Joseph's shoes right now <laughs> as this ruler in Egypt and walk into these, see these 10 brothers come in who had hurt him immeasurably. If you and I think about it, 
we can think about someone who is, has hurt us deeply. And the reality is, it's very difficult when we think about people that have hurt us deeply. It's very difficult to offer shalom to them, isn't it? To love them, to seek their, well, their well-being. Judah now, in love, is going to seek the shalom of the people who had hurt him. So think about this. Think about someone in your life who has deeply hurt you. Maybe it was an old boss. Maybe it was a former spouse. Maybe it was your parent. Maybe you're here on Mother's Day, and Mother's Day is difficult because you recognize that your relationship with your mom isn't what you want. Just think about people who have hurt you for a second and then think, can you seek their shalom? Can you love them? Because that's the way of the cross. That's the gospel. When we understand the weight of our sin that was taken off us and put on Jesus, when we get this, all of a sudden we say, I want to be transformed to show that kind of love to others. Can we seek the well-being of others? It's the one way that God puts our transportation to, transformation to the test is through our love. He's examining it. Now, a big test is coming, a bigger test. And as we transition to our next point, I want to read chapter 43, verse 31, because all of a sudden we're going to see this opportunity that Joseph plants right in these brothers' laps. Verse 31, after Joseph had washed his face, he came out. And controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served Joseph by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because Egyptians couldn't eat with Hebrews, for that's detestable to Egyptians. The men had been seated before them in the order of their ages from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. And when the portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Remember, Jacob had, four, had kids by four different women. So these brothers don't always share mothers. But Joseph had one full-blooded brother. His name was Benjamin. They, only two kids came from Rachel. Benjamin was his full-blooded brother. And being treated special with, with, with five times the amount of food is Joseph's way of asking this question. I wonder how my if my brothers have truly changed. How will they treat this son of Rachel? Because they didn't treat me so well. How will they treat the son of Rachel? Let's look at their behavior, he says. You see, God tests our transformation by examining our love. But the second way, the second way he tests our transformation is by examining our repentance. He checks our transformation. He tests it by examining our repentance. The word repentance is simply designed, uh, defined as a change of course. You're going one direction. Repentance means you turn around and you walk and go in life the other direction. That's the word repentance. We should never get repentance confused with remorse. Now, sometimes they walk hand in hand with each other, but remorse is feeling bad about something. You can feel bad. You can have remorse without repentance. 
Repentance is actually doing something about it. It's changing. So the question that Joseph is asking is, do my brothers, have they repented? Have they changed their behavior? So Joseph rigs up this test. He gives them grain. He gives them all their stuff as they're getting ready to go back home. He sends them on their way, all 10 brothers, uh, excuse me, all 11 brothers now, all 11 brothers on their way. He fills their sacks with grain, but he hides his silver cup in, Joseph, in Benjamin's backpack and he's setting them up. How will they treat Rachel's other son? And so he sends them on their way and then if they get a few, few ways out on their journey and he tells his chief servant, okay, go after him, go get him and bring him back. And so when he catches up to these, to these brothers, the servant does, he confronts them. Look at chapter 44, verse 7. He says, uh, verse 6 rather, when he caught up with them, he repeated the words that Joseph had told him to say. But they said to him, why, why does my Lord say such thing? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sack. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have this silver cup, he will die and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. That's how serious these brothers are and they propose death. Now this won't work in Joseph's tests if they're all dead. So the servant uh proposes a counterproposal. Verse 10. Very well, he says, let it be as you say, whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. And so all of a sudden here, we see this proposal, this counterproposal. They willingly open up their backpacks. Verse 12. The steward proceeded to search, beginning from the oldest, ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this, they tore their clothes, they loaded up their donkeys, and they returned to Egypt. They returned to the city. These boys are right now in a bad, bad place. Judah staked his life on Benjamin's safety. And now Benjamin has been found to have this silver cup. Look at what he says in verse 16. What can we say, my Lord, when they get back to Joseph? Judah replied, what can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God's uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. This is their chance, you guys. Right now, if they're gonna get out of there safely, this is their chance to throw Benjamin under the bus. Just like they did to Joseph so many years ago. They could easily say, hey, whoa, good luck, Ben. You know, it's, it's been nice knowing you, but wow, you're going to die or be this guy's servant. They could have said, you know, this boy, he's always kind of been a klepto, you know? So like, yeah, it's not surprising. Go ahead and take him. You know, when, when this is where they could have taken revenge on yet another brother. Had they changed, had they repented? And it begs us the question, have you and I really changed? Have you and I really repented? If repentance means a 180 degree shift, a change from going one direction in life to another. Many of us may have made this life change pursuing Christ. But what happens when things get hard? What happens when you're mad or you're hurt or you're lonely? 
Do you revert to the old ways? It's a temptation for every one of us. When people hurt us, it's easy to revert to revenge. But you and I, do we really trust the sovereign hand of God? Look at how the the response keeps going. Verse 17, but Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who is found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you can go back to your father in peace, in shalom. There it is again. So we spend the rest of chapter 44, really, Judah does this impassioned speech before this ruler of Egypt. He recounts the entire story of everything that's happened. It's a second telling of this. And then at the end, he says, listen, I could throw Benjamin under the bus here, but I'm not going to. We are all in this together. If you're going to keep one of us, you're going to keep all of us Judah retells the whole story. He comes to chapter 44, verse 30, and he says this. So now, if the boy Benjamin is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you and my father all my life. Judah's done with retaliation. He's done with guilt. He's done with his old ways. He's repented. He's changed. And this is the moment that he passes the test. You see, when God examines our transformation, he examines our love. When he puts our transformation to the test, he examines our repentance. And the third thing that he does when he puts our transformation to the test is he examines our sacrifice. He examines our sacrifice. God tests our transformation and he does so by examining our love, our repentance, our sacrifice. Because when we're changed like Jesus, we sacrifice for others. Watch how Judah does this. And the story ends on this note today. Look at the last verse, 33, the last two verses. Now then, please, Let your servant, let me, he says, remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let the boy return to his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. At this very moment, Judah is willing to sacrifice everything for the benefit of his father and for the benefit of his brother. He's willing to sacrifice it all. He's willing to give himself up. And isn't this just like Jesus? Who willingly sacrificed, who willingly gave his life, who willingly, having committed no sin of his own, spread across his arms on this cross and he spread them out and the blood flowed. He willingly gave, sacrificed himself for us. Our mission at Waukee Community Church is that we're bringing people together to live like Jesus, love like Jesus, and give like Jesus. And it occurred to me as I was reading this text that these are the the very things that God is examining in this text. He's love, he examines our love. Do we really reflect the love of Christ in the way we live? He's examining our repentance. Are, Are we living like Jesus? Is that how we've repented by following Christ? Are we giving ourselves? Are we sacrificing for others? 
I mean, these are the things that God is looking at. We don't just flippantly say, bring people together to live, love, and give like Jesus. They're important. This is what we're doing. Moms, you are here today on Mother's Day, and we're so glad you're here. Because when we talk about this idea of sacrifice, of giving your life away, I think moms get this maybe better than anyone else. Moms get it. Some of you, some of you moms, you work hard at this. Some of you, it just kind of comes naturally, but it's still difficult. And, and you get sacrifice. So I want to say two things to moms today under this idea. The first thing I want to say is thank you. Thank you for modeling for us what it means to sacrifice. And I especially want to say this to my mom, who has taught me how to give my life away probably better than anyone else in my life because she's always given her life away for others. When I remember back when I graduated from high school years ago, uh, up to that point, it, I thought laundry was self-cleaning. <laughs> I, I, it was truly amazing. I threw it in the, on the floor in a pile and it came back clean. It was just amazing, you know? Uh, I, I remember going to college and she said, I'm gonna have to teach you how to do laundry laundry? What's that? Like, at, truly, this is, my mom has sacrificed for me in more ways than I can, would ever know. Uh, and I just say, thank you. Moms, if you're here in this room, you get it. You know what it means to sacrifice. And we just say thank you for emulating Jesus to us. The second thing I want to say to moms is more of a challenge. If the first thing is thank you for showing us what sacrifice looks like, the second piece is to remind you, moms, that your children need to learn to sacrifice. Your children need to give like Jesus. They need to know, moms, us kids, we need to know that we need Jesus, not you. And I suppose this might be the most difficult part of being a mom, is sacrificing for your kids, all the while pointing them to the one they really need, which is Jesus. And sometimes, moms, you find so much meaning in sacrificing for your kids and making sure that they have everything that they need is the problem is, is they get so used to you sacrificing that by the time they grow up and leave the house, they think that everyone in the world should sacrifice for them the way you did. Moms, I want to challenge you to give your, your kids opportunities to learn what it means to sacrifice themselves. Teach your kids. Let them flounder from time to time. Let them fail. Let them give up something for others. I, and, and I don't just mean getting them more silver cord hours at Waukee High School, right? Like, because I know some of you moms, and you might do the silver cord hours for them, right? That's some of you moms are like that. You know, you'll just like, well, I'll just do this for them so they can get credit, right? No, no, no. Like, give your kids opportunities to sacrifice. Sometimes this means saying no to your kids. Sometimes this means putting them in situations that are deathly uncomfortable for them because you're teaching them to sacrifice. You're teaching them to give like Jesus. For some moms, it might mean kicking your adult kids out of the house. It might mean allowing them to make hard choices for the benefit of others. Kids need to learn to sacrifice. Moms, when you spend, find so much joy in sacrificing for your kids, sometimes you miss the point that they also need to learn to sacrifice for others. So on the one hand, we say, thank you for everything you do. On the other hand, we say, stop it. 
right? God is putting the extent of our transformation to the test. He's examining our love, our repentance, and he's examining our transformation. He's examining that by our sacrifice. Now, I want to close with this because it might beg the question for you, why would God put us to the test in this way? Why would he do that? Because we've been talking about his sovereignty for six weeks now, and part of his sovereignty is he knows everything. Can't he just look at our hearts and already know if our transformation is genuine or not? Can't he, wouldn't he already, why would he, this seems cruel. Why would he put us to the test? Why would he put these boys groveling for their life in front of this Egyptian ruler? Why would he do that? Well, the answer is, of course, he does know. But you and I don't. God puts our transformation to the test for our benefit. We need to know that we have been changed and are holding up the legacy that God gives us as his children. You and I need to know it. He does this for our benefit. My daughter, Kaylin, is a pretty darn good trumpet player. Uh, and sorry, I forgot to tell you I was going to do this. But uh, she's really good. She's better than she'll ever admit. And, uh, and so she spends a lot of time in her trumpet. At many nights at 11 p.m., I'm listening to her practice her trumpet in the basement. And so from time to time, she'll have an audition for something. And so she'll have to prepare for that. And she'll say, Dad, come down and listen to me. Uh, and she'll, like, scales, for instance. Like, and so she'll ask me, throw, throw a scale at me, and let's see how I do. I, I know she can do it. But I throw the hardest scales at her. I'm like, you know, like, we'll go around the circle of fifths, and, you know, I'm like, give me D sharp, right? Like, let, let me, like, get, let me get throw the hard ones at you. I, and, and I do that knowing full well that she can do it. But she needs to know under pressure that she can when God puts our transformation to the test, it's like that. You and I need to know that as the transformed children of God through the gospel of Jesus, that we in fact can live to our legacy. We can live in repentance and love and sacrifice. We can live, love, and give like Jesus. Why can you? Well, at the end of the day, it's not because we're awesome. It's because we have accepted in faith what Christ has done and God gave us his Holy Spirit, transforming us and making us like him. God's sovereign hand changes us. We will never, ever be the same. We will never, ever be the same in this. And we need him desperately to remind us on a daily basis, to remind us, that we can indeed live as the children of God. Would you pray with me as, as we close? Heavenly Father, we come to you today grateful. We come to you today grateful that you, in fact, can, by your power, confirm to us just who we are. We are your children. And we can live by the power of God, through the power of the Spirit, we can live, love, and give like Jesus. And as we cry out to you today for how much we need you in this test, we do so knowing full well that you stand with us, that you're faithful, and that you'll never let us go. 
So as we close in worship today, would you be honored in every way? In Jesus' name, amen.